0: Check out org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a music discovery podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and artists from around the world. My name is Zach Lubiton. This month, The show on the road is sponsored by Winter Wondergrass, now with three unique festival locations. In Steamboat, Colorado, February 21st through 23rd, Lake Tahoe's beautiful Squaw Valley, California, March 27th through 29th, and now Stratton Resort, Vermont, for the second annual Sugar and Strings Fest, April 10th and 11th. Who throws a music festival under the stars in the middle of winter, you ask? Why, Winter Wondergrass, of course. These are the most unique festivals I've ever been a part of. I played them in Lake Tahoe and in Colorado, and you know what? Just because you're wearing snow pants doesn't mean you can't dance, and it is really, really fun, guys. Single and multi-day passes for Winter Wondergrass are available now. Head over to winterwondergrass.com for more. This week on the show, my conversation with a cerebral Texas-born roots rocker who has one foot in the torn tinsel of a Houston honky-tonk and another in a haunted California Black Mirror episode set in a tilted sci-fi future, who on one hand traffics in a deep-voiced country swagger, and on the other, isn't afraid to openly process his recent family traumas and loss on his stunning and aptly titled first solo album, Love in the Dark, Jason Hawk Harris. I want you to think about this for a second. When was the last time you really looked yourself in the mirror? I mean, took a long, deep look. You ever notice that we look much younger than our grandparents did at our age? Are we that better off? Are we happier, healthier people than they were? Of course, many factors are at play. Maybe it was the fact that folks like my grandmother would smoke three packs a day in their parlors without blinking and live to tell you about it. Or maybe we don't work on those hot, cacophonous factory floors like my grandfather did for decades. We don't pickle ourselves with three martini lunches. The fact is, when my grandmothers were looking at themselves in the mirror, they were barely getting by during the Great Depression. If there was one fact of life, it was that death was lurking around every corner, and it decimated some part of every family. In many ways, I count my family to be extremely blessed. And yet, when I look back at their history, there's trauma and pain all around. On one side, my grandmother never knew her mother, losing her during childbirth, while my other grandmother lost her father when she was just two to pneumonia. And my dad's father, my grandfather, he gets a call when he's a teenager about his father who fell into the middle of a ship during his longshoreman's shift and never came back. And when I asked my grandmothers who were still going strong about how they dealt with all this, they laugh it off. This is just how things were. People died. And you moved on you can't help but think that that pain is somewhere deep deep inside them and it changes us it has to right and yet we don't really think about it we go to our office jobs or we sit in vans waiting to play songs each night and you can see the lack of desperation that bone-deep struggle and subtle separation from the pure survival on our faces we're soft we're young even though we're growing old. Despite his youth and that cherubic face and bright boyish laugh that could place him anywhere between 16 and 35, Jason has that deep, world-weary wisdom that shines from his songs. They smell of the formaldehyde of funeral home waiting rooms and the sickly sweet stink of wilting tulips placed around the casket at some sad attempt at cheer. And sometimes that pain, that heartbreak, that loss of someone so close to you when you're still so young and need them so desperately, that can't be faked. And while most songwriters like myself like to hide behind walls of metaphor, on songs like Phantom Limb, Jason dives headlong into the trauma and tries to process it right there in front of us. And if one thing's clear, Jason has had to forge his own path through grief and addiction. And you know what? I'm glad he's on the path he's on. And that folks like the outlaw country collectors at Bloodshot Records are giving him a fighting chance to put his music into the world. If this is the future of country music in America, sign me up. Before we jump headlong into the conversation with Jason here, I'd love to tell you real quick that my band Dust Bowl Revival's new record, Is It You, Is It Me?, is coming out January 31st. We're really excited to bring this to you guys. The tour starts next week, January 29th at the Sinclair in Boston, and we're playing some wonderful venues on this first run, including the 930 Club in Washington, D.C., February 7th, the Paramount Theater in Bristol, Tennessee, February 8th, and we're going down to Asheville, North Carolina, Atlanta, cutting over to Nashville where we're playing with the wonderful Front Country, who have been on this very show, February 12th, and we will head home to California to play some very big shows February 28th at the Fillmore in San Francisco. Please come and see us and the wonderful Jared in the Mill from Arizona and also February 29th at the Troubadour in LA. I can't wait to share some of this new music with you and in a couple weeks we will talk to my gang the Dust Bowl Revival right here on the podcast. But That's enough of that. I would like you to sit down and relax and please enjoy the conversation I had with the wonderful Jason Hawk Harris. Grandfather.
2: My mind is a blur. It's like I've been here a while, or I've just now arrived. And the water here's nice, and the wind is so fine. Have I been here a while, or did I just arrive? Grandfather, you have not said a word that is so unlike you. But it's clear from your smile you know something so good. Something I don't know but something I should. Oh grandfather, why haven't you said a well? word
3: Uh my name is Jason Hawk Harris. And um, you are the radio audience.
1: (laughs) What would you describe your music
3: as? Um, I usually come up with a jokey sort of thing to describe it as, like, I've I've done Americana grief grass, or meta-apocalyptic country, or something like that, but these days I just say country, Americana-ish. And you're from Houston originally? Yeah, originally from Houston. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Where'd you get the name Hawk? Where'd that come from?
3: It's my mom's maiden name. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, I figure she had as much to do with me as my dad, whose name I have. My full name is his name. I'm a second. Oh. And so, uh, but so, when my mom died, I just, uh, I didn't want that name to die. So.
1: so you're not going with the junior?
3: No, my parents did not want me to be called a junior. They were um, very adamant that they didn't, they didn't want people knowing I was a junior and then calling me junior. They were just not into that. So they broke the rule. You're a junior if your dad if you're named after your dad. You're a second if you're named after your grandpa. Oh. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Uh-huh. You know, the grief grass thing, mm-hmm. while we can chuckle about it now, mm-hmm. I think is like, you know, comes from some real heavy stuff that's happened to you in the last, you know, yeah. few years. Yeah, for know? sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you're releasing this first solo record of yours, mm-hmm. um, and... Man, I just listened to it the last few days, finally, and it's 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 really intense, man. And it's big, and it's fun, mm-hmm. but it's also, like, whiplash-inducing <laughs> in that, like, the honesty in which you get into some of the stuff, like your mom's death,
3: uh-huh.
1: you know, you're not holding stuff back, right. you know? Which is, like, the poetry that can come from some of this real trauma mm-hmm. I think we expect it to be veiled, like, six layers deep sometimes. So right. it's like, well, yeah. we have to discover that, you know, your mom passed
3: away. Yeah. And, you know,
1: the alcoholism that is running through your family. Yeah. And you're right out with it. Like, there's not, there's yeah. not a lot of fear in your songs. Well,
3: I've often tried to be the other way yeah. that you describe. Yeah. Where it's like, because I like, I love reading Neil Gaiman, because he releases bits of the story to you in such, like... Right vague and like veiled detail until finally you're at the end and like you feel like you have he's never come out and said it but you know everything that's going on and so i always want to do that i always shoot for that but i think during that time when i was going through such like intense grief i just couldn't be anything but matter of fact with myself and i don't even i have no clue if the rest of my writing will end up being like that down the line but it certainly was for this record
1: the record's called "Love and the Dark" mm-hmm. on Bloodshot Records, Chicago's finest. Mm-hmm. Love, love Bloodshot.
3: Awesome, yeah, they're great. I've, I've been really happy with working with them so far. And uh,
1: I think that the thing that surprised me, going through these songs, was the almost Elton John pop lushness to it. Because there's, yeah. there's 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 a lot of like piano. Yeah, I love piano. That's sort of. Uh-huh running through the record Mm -hmm. and these sort of big, almost musical theater tapestries going Mm -hmm. on. You know, I think you're a big Queen fan as well. Huge Queen fan. You know? Absolutely. um, You have a Spotify playlist of some of your favorite tunes. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I've never heard that Millionaire Waltz that oh. I had on there. Oh, yeah. The man. Queen song. That's a great song. And I'm like, what is this yeah, song? it's bizarre. Yeah. You know?
3: It's, yeah, it's one of my favorite uh, favorites of theirs, and I feel like it's a deep cut that people just don't know. They, they usually don't know that song.
1: It is kind of shameful how little I ever, like, look into some of Queen's other music. Their back like,
3: catalog is nuts.
1: Yeah, it's like, because <laughs> it has this orchestral... Classical skewering, which I yeah. think you're doing too. Like you have strings and you have harmonies, but it's all sort of with a wink and uh-huh. a nod in yeah. a way. Like you're yeah. not trying to be too pretty about it.
3: Uh huh. I think I've more embraced like having a bunch of different instruments on a track versus like Brian May was like, nah I want to do it all with the guitar," mm-hmm. which is why he's such a genius. Right. You know, I mean, he made like I, I think of the um, the section of uh, "Take My Breath Away." like this he's got this orchestral session he comes in with this guitar and it sounds like a fucking cello right. I'm, oh language is there a language thing on this please okay, no cool. go, go on both um, yeah but uh, but yeah I think that that queen definitely has had a huge effect on me um, in uh, in that regard and just like the ta- the tapestry kind of kind of way of thinking. I can't help it at this point. And um, when I was with the band that I was in before this, the Show Ponies, I would constantly try to put stuff like that. and everybody would kind of be like, chill out. (laughs) Like, that is not what this is. Which is
1: true. There's always a bit of the fear of creating something that you can't actually ever play live. Yeah. You know, and I'm going through the same thing with the Dust Bowl record, where I'm like, we need like a symphony orchestra. Mm Mm-hmm. To play this right yeah and is it going to be sort of a, a dumbed down uh half-assed version when we play it in a bar somewhere mm-hmm. but sometimes you got to go in the studio and create the Just magic in it. there like why not yeah you know you're not doing a live record yeah you're doing a studio record
3: yeah and like live records are live records for a reason i mean they people want that you know matter of fact simplicity they want to hear that and then i think that You know, what was cool about coming back to Queen again, and even Elton John, like, they went into the studio and were just like, we're just going to make it sound really cool on speakers. Yeah. And, like, we don't have any limits. We'll figure out the performance later. And uh, it almost always works out, I've found. Like, even even if you do something insane, like, I have a song on the record that I'll never be able to perform properly live unless, like, I'm making, you know... Forty thousand a gig, and I can bring an orchestra on the road with me. Which one? Uh, grandfather. Hmm. This last one at the end of it. There's like a huge string section. And there's like xylophones. Yeah. You know, and concert percussion and like stuff. I'm just not timpani. gonna. Yeah, some timpani. Yeah. There's there's all sorts of stuff in there, and it's just I'm not gonna ever be able to do. I mean, my dream. Don't get me wrong. Is to do like a Lyle Lovett and his large band thing, where I can like travel with like a you know. 25 piece orchestra i'd love to do that but i mean i, I realized that with the kind of music i write i'm not i'm not going to be playing the rose bowl anytime soon <laughs> or have that kind hey, of budget you never know but, man yeah uh-huh
1: I mean, it's funny because the first single you release, Cursing at the Light, has this sort of upbeat, almost rockabilly, Mm -hmm. you know, let's get drunk and screw everything else. Yeah. Which I was like, oh, well, the rest of the record will probably be like this. Yeah, I wanted to
3: ease people in. (laughs) And I I go
1: back and forth, especially with my stuff of like, do we give them the happy or do Mm -hmm. we give them the darkness? Yeah. And I think it's hard to know. What's not going to scare people away, yeah, but also sure. what's going to make people take you
3: seriously. And also yeah. what's going to make people not like be like, whoa, 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 this is not what I signed up for when you give them the rest of it, yeah, but, which is that I'm a little worried about, but um, yeah.
1: Well, you have that line, uh, medicating that beat down heart of mine, mm-hmm. you know, in Cursing the Light, so you can finally sleep and, and right. you know, so do you have insomnia, my question is, and... What do you do if you can't fall asleep?
3: Oh, I definitely have insomnia. I have it in bouts. Like, I'll have, it happens less these days because I found that, um, I found that uh, I I just have, I've never had much structure in my life. Like, I've always just got up and be like, what am I going to do today? I'll do, you know. And uh, so I've found that, like, one thing that has really helped my insomnia is, like, doing the same thing every morning. Like, getting What is up, that thing? I get up, I make the bed. I go to the gym, I just totally like slog my way through it, I get home, I put some running clothes on and go for a run.
1: You go to the gym and then you go for a run? Yeah,
3: lately. And I've been doing this for like three weeks, but I have slept like a baby, Mm. just from having like a routine. So like that's what I've been doing lately, but in the past when I was more unhealthy, you know, I'd have a beer... Or, like, I'd stay up so late until got a I a beer in the morning? No, 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 no. I mean, like, at night. Like, oh, yeah, if yeah. I wanted to get to sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, and I'd have a beer or two or three or four. Or, like, I'd just wait... Or just until I passed out. Or I would go to, like, a show and stay out so late and, like, right. just wait until that moment where I had no other choice but to fall asleep. Right. You know, and then I'd feel guilty waking up at, like, ten yeah, And so like, you know, the whole day would be ruined and then the cycle starts again. You know, it's, it is funny uh, how
1: like when you wake up really early and you actually have to do stuff, mm-hmm. you can do all these things and it's like 10 a.m. And yeah. you're
3: like,
1: wait, the whole rest of the day is still available. Yeah, man. It yeah. It's crazy. It does feel great. I'm yeah. not a morning person at all. Okay. But like, yeah, it, it,
3: I can see how every now and again when you do that. Uh huh.
1: Like, you feel really accomplished?
3: Totally, you know? yeah. Like, they say, uh, you know, what what is it? The Marines are like, the Marines get more done before 5 a.m. than anybody on the planet. Yeah. Like, cause they, just, I mean, they also probably go to bed at, like, 7.30, yeah. which is crazy. But um, I'm a morning person and a night person. So I'm, like, constantly warring with myself because I want to stay up late, but I also want to get up at, like, 6.30 a.m. What is your relationship to alcohol now? So I have uh, a lot of the songs about alcoholism are like me trying to understand my mother's alcoholism Mm -hmm. because um, while I have addictions, I've had legitimate addictions. Like alcoholism, I've kind of was always terrified of because my mom and um, just seeing what it turned her into. And so I think a lot of these songs like giving in, cussing at the light where I'm like speaking as the alcoholic Um, I feel like it feels real to me singing it in one way because I am an addict, but in the other, uh, but it feels strange in another way because it's not alcoholism that uh, that's my thing. So like you have those two songs that are totally from the alcoholics perspective. As well, like, that's where my mom died. I just wanted to kind of like understand the thing that she did. She needed so badly that she killed herself doing it. You know, and so I just found myself, it was really easy for me to slip into that mode of writing like an alcoholic. And I, and uh, this is kind of a, and if I do say so myself moment, but if I do say so myself, I think it is believable, you know, even though I'm not um, an alcoholic. And I think it's just because, you know, when she, when someone dies, I just feel like you can, you think of scenes, you think of things that happened with them that like all of a sudden, you have this like insane amount of empathy you can just yeah. kind of put those clothes on. Well, and it's part of
1: it is, you know, there's other songs on the record, phantom limb, you know, about the, you know, the formaldehyde, the tobacco and the tulips. Mm-hmm. And it's never going to come out. That right. sort of smell, that feeling, Yeah, you know, and you're not shying away from it. You're saying again and again, you know, mother, you're dead. Mm-hmm. Like you're gone. Right. And, you know, this album is almost like a processing of that for yeah, me. Yeah, for know? sure. For and, sure. you know, I wonder if you feel that there is a bit of a squeamishness in trafficking in your own pain.
3: Yeah, you know? I have felt that before. Like, I've felt like... But
1: also, like, why not try to process it through songwriting? That's what you do.
3: I mean, that's, like, the best thing I could do for myself. But the, <laughs> commerce, the, the
1: commerce of it is always uncomfortable to me because Feels it's weird. like yeah well it's natural but it's also like please buy this product
3: <laughs> so i can keep doing it so i can process my mother's
1: <laughs> demise yeah yeah exactly it's tricky
3: you know yeah it is and i think that for me i've just had to continue to because i think there is a tendency there's this poem by mary oliver who i think is like one of the greatest american living poet or uh, american poets ever not living anymore died recently but she has this poem called The Poet with His Face in His Hands. Mm. And it's all there's like one line in it that's like um it's like uh you want to scream your problems out to the whole world so that everyone can hear, mm. but the world already has enough of that noise. Mm. And then basically the end of the poem is just like calm down and listen to the birds. Mm. You know? And uh and I think that um there is in a sense, I feel like I am that guy with his face in his hands mm. sometimes. Like and I think for me, the way that I've tried to, like, um, combat against that tendency to kind of, like, wallow in the pain. Because it is very cathartic to feel your pain, mm-hmm. you know. But I think just, like, also looking and, like, continuing to, like, try to self-improve, you know. To, um, to not, you know, eventually... I, I, for my next record, I'm not going to talk about my mother's death. I've already decided. You don't know that. You're totally right. <laughs> I don't know that. But, like... It's. Uh, but you won't. I'm at least that's not, not gonna. Be gonna the focus. It's not gonna be the focus. Yeah. If I do something, it'll be you know a line here, like a song here. But um, you know, and not to say I couldn't keep processing this because I can, not and like maybe five years from now I'll do it because like I think Suf- Carrie and Lowell isn't that about his mother dying like uh, Sufjan Stevens? I think it. I think it is, but he wrote it like a while after, mm. and like there's this other. Uh, man, it sounds really pretentious quoting poets, but there's Wordsworth who also said like, poetry is memory properly remembered, mm. and like so almost like you need some distance. Like Phantom Limb was written the week after my mom died. Mm. Like I don't even remember writing it. It just happened. Like it just fell out of me, you know. And um, give me the first verse of Phantom Limb. You want me to sing it? No. No, just okay. I, I got this shirt. Smells like the viewing. Formaldehyde, tobacco and tulips. I watched it ten times and it won't come out. No matter how long it's been, I can't forget. I smell it right now and it won't come out.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 processing takes time, mm-hmm. you know. And that's something that I think is so universal but so powerful for people. They need almost like your processing to mm-hmm. give them permission
3: to process yeah, things. Yeah. I've certainly done that with other artists for sure.
1: I'm curious, when you're writing songs, do you feel like the imagination and the fantasy type of writing is important to you? Or do you feel like writing about your actual experience is more how you do it, usually?
3: I I think I don't have the energy to go through that kind of trauma all the time and write about it. Like, I I think that I'm doing it right now just because it's, it's there. But, like, you know, I think that There's, it's just exhausting to do that um, when it's really, really happening. It's almost, I I would actually argue that you've got more of a chance of capturing the feeling in the immediate by imagining that happening to your your lady. Like you've got, you know, because it didn't actually happen. So you have the perspective of real life to be living in. Uh, while you're looking at that situation, and like looking at it from a fan- from a fantasy point of view, fantasy is a weird word for it, right? We there needs to be another word for like that that has to do with like a a, a bad thing because when you hear fantasies, I always think of like sexual fantasies, yeah. which is like, but um, I mean that's what it is, but. Uh,
1: projection
3: A projection or, is uh, great. I mean, you're scared of losing her. You're terrified. Yeah. And that's and maybe you're getting to the heart of it is like you have all these people out here that like are terrible at just like recognizing that there's pain and death and fear and sadness in the world and like maybe like writing a song like that gives them permission to feel that. And maybe homeboy yeah. with the with the beard who was crying on his couch with his wife yeah. there like maybe, you know, he needs that song to be able to get into. But in regards to your question, I don't I don't know. I just know that the one is exhausting. Yeah, and um, that the other. I, I don't think I'm not with this whole like country music philosophy. That's like you got to write the truth, you yeah. know, about yourself because like you can't like you just no one's life is that interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a few that maybe go against that, but You're
1: like I got up and went to the gym.
3: Uh-huh. Yeah, nobody's gonna write about that that bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You know what?
1: Because people need more poetry in their lives. Uh-huh. We're going to force feed it to them. Let's do I it. want you to read that Mary Oliver
3: poem, the yeah, poet let's do with it. his face in his hands. Let's do it. All right. You want to cry aloud for your mistakes, but to tell the truth, the world doesn't need any more of that sound. So if you're going to do it and can't stop yourself, if your pretty mouth can't hold it in, at least go by yourself across the 40 fields and the 40 dark inclines of rocks and water to the place where the falls are flinging out their white sheets like crazy. And there's a cave behind all that jubilation and water fun and you can stand there under it and roar all you want and nothing will be disturbed. You can drip with despair all afternoon and still on a green branch, its wings just lightly touched by the passing foil of the water, the thrush, puffing out its spotted breast, will sing of the perfect stone-hard beauty of everything stone-hard beauty of everything. Mm. That's good, man. Yeah, she's great. Rest in peace. Absolutely. She is.
1: Yeah, so, you know, the, the line in giving in, I wish that where I am is where I've been. I was trying to wrap my head around that. Yeah. It, it <laughs> reminds confusing. me of the Bob Dylan... Uh, I was so much older than yeah. younger than that now. You gotta
3: do a little time yeah. warp. What do you kinda, what do you mean by that? Uh so I wish that where I I wish that where I am was where I've okay, so I wish that where I am right now, which is alcoholic, drunk, like totally rock bottom right. was where I've been. So that I could be looking back uh, in this part of my life. Yeah. So that's like I wish I was wish I was already past it, but I'm Yes, not. yeah, but I'm not. Yeah. Yeah, that that all the other line that you
1: know, I have a wife that works hard, and I spend the mo- her money in the dark. You <laughs> know, <laughs> there is the kind of <laughs> the predicament that a lot of touring musicians right have, where the the wives are making the real money, yeah, or like are they actual breadwinners and responsible people, yeah, in the family, uh-huh. and obviously they love you for your talent. For
3: sure. But... Yeah, that might have been how you got him to marry you. <laughs> it comes to a point where you're like, uh,
1: is this a smart move that you did in marrying me? <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've been experiencing that a lot lately. I mean, since the band that I was in stopped, you know, touring, I mean, I've been hustling just to try to make anything. Yeah. And um, and I think that, uh yeah, there's... Especially, I think there's. It's also like the, with male musicians. Not that it's not, you know, a particular predicament with female musicians as well. But like, I feel with male musicians, like societal pressures, especially from where I'm from in Texas, where it's like the man makes the money. You know, it's like there's still this like kind of like I don't know this evolutionary kind of thing inside of me that's like I need to be, I need to kill. Well, it's like kill a shame thing. And and also, it like, yeah, it's a shame thing. I exactly. Haven't-
1: why hasn't my talent been recognized <laughs> yeah. in a monetary way?
3: Yeah, yeah, and, and it also It's a shame thing because it's like i'm i I, I can't you know and uh, and this is a hang up, but it's like, oh, I can't provide for my wife kind of yeah. thing, which um I mean she doesn't need me she she does not <laughs> need me, you know i mean she she does she does great, you know How long have you guys been together? uh together, whoa, 12 years. Wow. And uh, we've been married for eight. Mm-hmm. Impressive. Yeah. Eight? You don't yeah. seem that old. I'm 31, but we got married young. We got married 23. Wow. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you were in L.A. already? Or was it... Yeah, I was in L.A. Um, so she, we both grew up together in Houston. Um, and uh, she... Are you high school sweethearts? No, definitely not was complicated (laughs) but um we uh but she went to baylor in texas and i went to i went out here and and then uh we um you know we were long distance for like four years Mm. and then she moved out here to la and we've been here ever since and we got married when she moved out here staying together long distance is not easy it was it was like don't get me wrong it was brutal but like at the same time i think like i have this kind of like when you know you know like we both knew we were going to marry each other it was just set. Like we were just we never had any doubts about it. We we're just crazy about each other. Where'd you meet? Uh we met <laughs> we met at a tween dance club. Okay. That was in my hometown. It was called Attitudes. Ooh. It was weird, man. Like there was some weird shit going on.
1: Attitudes.
3: Like you had these people that were running it that were like you know, a Christian kind no, of thing? No, not at all. The people that were running it were like um, basically training us to go clubbing. Mm. And like they would, you know, get, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. Like in this Christian conservative community, like this guy would get on stage, this older guy that like owned the place. He's like 45, 50, something like that. And he's like, all right, let's get all the girls on stage and see who shakes with their mom and gave them the best. And all these like, 13 14 year old girls would get up on stage just like twerking and like i go back now and i think about that and i'm just like whoa yeah what was that place and now it's like i think they figured out what was going on because now it's literally it's not just gone but it's demolished yeah the building and everything but yeah it was weird man but anyways we met there (laughs) did you ask her to dance uh yeah oh yeah for sure yeah and um it was uh yeah that was such a weird place
1: Were you a
3: melodramatic rock and roll 13-year-old? I was, yeah. Uh, I I am one of those melodramatic fools, Uh, (laughs) as Green Day, as Billy Joe Armstrong said. I sang Basket Case for my 8th grade talent show, so, you know, you're absolutely right. I was melodramatic. (laughs) I sang the Ramones' Sedated. Oh, hell yeah. I want to be sedated,
1: absolutely. And uh, the music teacher, who was from Austria, Mm -hmm. pulled the the electricity because it was too loud
3: that's so punk man you kept playing right (laughs) and the crowd was like no like (laughs) let them play and the
1: funny thing was that my dad was the MC Uh of the talent show and he was like okay let's uh <laughs> let's get them off stage i was he like totally like threw me under the bus He's yeah. like well that was a little much uh, here's some tap dancing oh my
3: <laughs> gosh that's so good have you like gone to therapy for that <laughs> i thought i think i thought it was kind of like amusing at the time yeah
1: it made us look cooler I think.
3: oh for sure yeah. it made it more punk like miss swisher sure. was like not having it yeah yeah, yeah. and miss swisher was the man <laughs> yeah i mean at she that was. point yeah
1: what was the first band that you played in
3: that i played in it was a band called payday Fifth grade, but like we used to, we had these like, my sister has um, my sister has a, a form of cerebral palsy, so she she always had these uh, her she couldn't ride a regular bike, mm. so she had these like tricycle these big adult tricycles, and they had big baskets on them, and so like to have band practice, we would like fill that basket like with our amps and stuff, and just ride to each other's house. And I remember we we just had like we were just like this troop of like three wheeled bikes like going around the neighborhood with our gear. But that's my best memory from from that time.
1: There is something uniquely exciting about when you first form a band. Oh, yeah. And you're like, we're going to take over
3: the world. Yeah. And you have all that hope and that optimism. And you're like,
1: we can actually play the same notes as each other. Yeah, we can do it sounds
3: raw and nasty and awesome. I mean, that first time that you play, like, I remember playing with someone... With two electric guitars and both strumming like an A chord, yeah, and like it's being intoxicating. like, like being like, my dad taught me you can play an A chord here, yeah, and I can play an A chord here, yeah, and playing that at the same time and just being like, we're basically like pros.
1: Did your dad teach you guitar? Yeah, he did. Mm-hmm.
3: Did he play? Yeah, he plays and sings. He sounds like James Taylor. Mm. Uh, that's that's kind of his uh, his wheelhouse, and I just uh, me and my. Stepmom, or my, my my stepmom just got him a, a guitar, um, a Martin, and he had, he hadn't been playing a, a, a for a while, and so he he started to play again. So happy to, happy about that. But um, but yeah, he was a worship leader oh. at the local church, and like so, I was exposed to him singing and playing, you know, uh, from a young age, and I wanted to do it too. So, what is your relationship with your dad now? That's great. My dad's like my best buddy. He's young. So I'm 31. He was 18 when I was born. Oh, wow. So he's 50. Um, and so like, you know, he looks really young. When we hang out, people think we're like brothers yeah. even. it's uh, So it's a unique relationship. But um, yeah, he's uh, we're super tight. We're best buds. I, my, my relationship with my mom was much more complicated. But with him, it's always been easy.
1: And when did you come out here When in college?
3: Yeah, I came out here like 13 years ago. Yeah, so when I was 18 mm-hmm. for college. Mm-hmm. Went to Biola University, small school down in Orange County, li- small liberal arts university, but went to the conservatory there. Because you have definitely some classical leanings in some of your songs. But that's what I studied you know. in school. was yeah. classical composition yeah. is what I did. On so, guitar? Uh, no, I studied pencil and paper. Yeah writing stuff like I was really into orchestral writing so um, yeah if you could write
1: the score to any movie that has already come out that you love what would it be
3: ooh what a great question this is interesting because part of me wants to go to like my favorite scores in movies, but then I'm like, well, wait, I don't want to redo that though. Yeah. But then the other part of me like wants to go to movies that like I think the score could have been like better. Or I didn't like it very much. Um, one such instance of that, I think, the latter is uh, what's the movie with Kevin Costner and and they're they're looking for the mobsters. Um, the Untouchables. The Untouchables. I think that's the worst movie score ever. <laughs> okay. For a decent movie, you know. So I picked that one. It's bizarre. Do you remember it at all? Does it it's come to mind? It's been a while
1: since I've seen it. All I remember, I remember when I was a kid, I watched it in high school. We watched it because our high school drama teacher is in the movie uh-huh. as an actor. Nice. It was like her moment of Chicago uh, sort okay. of fame. Yeah, gotcha. She played like, A woman coming in and reporting a crime. Okay, gotcha. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so The Untouchables. The score
3: is bizarre. Okay, so redo that. But if I, how about a score that I wish I would have written? Okay. The Red Violin, John Corigliano, is the most beautiful and impressive score I've ever heard because it basically, have you seen the movie? think so yeah yeah so it follows the life of this violin that was made in like the 14th or the 13, the 15th century right and up all the way into the present time and so you see this era this violin going through all these different eras and like so he's writing music for that period of each era that the violin goes through so he starts in like the renaissance and he's writing you know like Monteverdi right and then he goes to like the the 17th century where he's, where he's writing like Bach and then he and he's able to do it masterfully. And then he's got this like character, and he's like a Paganini, so he's like writing romantic music. And then goes in the early early twentieth century with like Stravinsky and stuff. It's more modern. Mm. And then like you get all the way to the to and then you get to like the Chinese Revolution mm. where um, they're trying to protect this thing. And, I don't like, think I have seen this movie.
1: I shouldn't. Should
3: it. it's amazing just because they have this like the violin becomes a character, mm. and it's a it's a great it's a great movie. But the score is. It won the Oscar for oh, cool. best, best score that year. but yeah.
1: What do you think is the most transcendent musical experience that you've had
3: in your life? Like a concert or a moment that sticks in your brain? I think the one that changed my life the most. Yeah, when I was in fifth grade, I had only up to that point been exposed to like Christian contemporary music.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And like, so that was who, that was what I listened to. And, um, no classic well, rock actually on the house country. Yeah. I had been, I had been exposed to a lot of country and like Roy Orbison and Elvis, mm. but like, uh, anything written past like the 1980 needed to be like Christian music. Mm. And my parents totally like, once I turned like 12, they were like, all right, there's all this other stuff too. But I guess, mm. I don't know why they just wanted me to listen to that stuff when I was younger. But I was over at a friend's house, um, a heathen friend's house who had a queen record <laughs> and he played Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. and that was the first like time I had heard like yeah anything like that and yeah. my world just like opened up it was it was amazing I wish it was like a concert or something but it wasn't it yeah. was in this like dingy Little bedroom, yeah. that smelled like sweaty boy, yeah, you know, and playing this like bohemian rhapsody on his big old speakers, like probably sounded like music from outer space, yeah, right? out of his Pentium two processor, yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, i just I actually just remembered one from uh a concert experience that I completely forgot about. Do you know the band saves the day that sounds yeah, like they're not uh. They're a love them or hate them band because this yeah. dude has this really emo, like, nasally voice. Right. But if you, like, really look at it, the songwriting's killer. And they have this one song called This Is Not An Exit. And I was at um, the Verizon Theater in Houston, Texas. And I was, like, 17. And I was miserable because my, my girlfriend at the time had just broken up with me and started dating my best friend. Oof. And, like, Cold. I hear... And, like, I was just, like, you know, so upset and uh i think i was 16 actually um but uh yeah the band came out and they played this song called this is not an exit Mm -hmm. and the words of the chorus are like um just sail belly up to the clouds the rocks scraping your backs to breathe in the air will be the only thing that you have Mm -hmm. and uh and i and it's this really uplifting song about like hey yes it's painful Just, like, float. Yeah. You know? Just float. Because you're not going to get away from it. And, like, it was this moment where I... Yeah, I had tears rolling down my cheeks. Mm. I mean, I was... Yeah, that was really impactful. It was, like, just for you in that moment. Exactly, man. It really felt like that. Taking Back Sunday played before, they were terrible.
1: (laughs) So, I mean, you're in a place right now, you know, you're releasing your first record. It's exciting, but it's also, like, you're starting over in a way. Oh, totally. So, like... You have to get out there and you have to make a name for yourself Mm -hmm. from scratch. Yeah. You know, is that both daunting and exciting? Or like, what are you feeling about it right now? It
3: would have been way more daunting had Bloodshot not come around and said, we're going to take a flyer on this kid. Um, It would have been way, way more daunting. I don't even know. Like, I was at a point before um, I signed with Bloodshot where I was like, I, you know, because the show ponies, we worked our butts off to like really, show ponies band I was in before. Um, we worked our butts off to kind of get out there and get on tour. And like we did like, you know, six, seven, eight, really, really low paying tours, you know, before we finally got some like traction. And we booked most of those tours ourselves. And then we finally got on um, on crossover Praetor Day at the time. I think you guys were on there, too. And like that was a huge relief, and like, but but that time of like working our butts off to like make right. that whole thing work, you know, that was a lot of energy. Yeah. And I was yeah. just talking to Clay, the lead singer in that band, the other day, and we were talking. to, Like, I think you have that kind of energy to start something like that one time.
1: Yeah. Like once. Well, it helps being young and kind of stupid. Exactly. Because you're yeah. just like, we're gonna yeah. spread our seed yeah, we'll all over hair. America. You know? <laughs> this is a hilarious you know? way to put it. Yeah. No, but it, but eventually, you know, you guys were selling out the troubadour and stuff like that yeah you know? no we but, had we had great but, things going yeah but i think like there comes a point where the the scary realization is like is this as far as this is gonna go mm-hmm. you know yeah and i feel that about my band a lot of times where right. it's like yeah we can like we headline the Fillmore, mm-hmm. but like no, i don't
3: no easy feat
1: i don't see how right now there's gonna be anything bigger than that unless mm. something else magical happens. Right. And that's a scary place to be because you're like, we are busting our ass all mm-hmm. over America.
3: Absolutely. And
1: people love what we're doing, but not like enough
3: yeah. to make a
1: difference. Do you yeah. think
3: that's what it is? Do you think it's not enough? Or do you think you're just at well, a point where Our like... music
1: is not maybe interesting enough oh. on a national scale or our story oh, is I not see cool enough. what you Because sometimes, honestly, and my wife works you know, at NPR... It's like the story counts, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You know, in your story about coming through hardship and, you know, alcoholism and trauma, it's uncomfortable because it's like, well, this is what I'm selling. Mm-hmm. But also, people like buying that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And a lot of times, if I'm real about it, what, what story do I have? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I have that I'm a songwriter and I'm a playwright and... I moved out here from Chicago and I put an ad on Craigslist and that's our story. Right, you know? Which is fine. Yeah. But like, there's people I've had on this show, the war and treaty, for example, right?
3: Right. Oh my gosh. But those guys, oh I mean, you could gosh, make a
1: yeah. movie out of Absolutely. their story. Today. You know, I mean, he's like, yeah. you know, he's a Iraq war veteran. He's writing songs on the pianos in Saddam Hussein's palace, you know, and <gasps> I mean, like they—that's
3: a hell of a story. I, I mean, it's it's yeah.
1: it's just like
3: I see what you mean, it's, right? It's sensational.
1: Some, yeah. but, but that's why I think sometimes I I appreciate guys like Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. who he didn't have a story,
3: no, right? Uh-uh.
1: He made it all up, yeah, you know. And I think that is part of the American sort of roots tradition, in a way, is that if you don't have a story, make your own yeah, story. Make your own story, you know. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, But that's a scary thing where you're like, maybe I'm not interesting enough. Uh,
3: yeah, you know? man, I totally, I, I think that, I see, yeah, I totally see what you're saying. And it's a shame because, like, we have this sort of, my wife was saying this the other day, we were talking about Blink-182 yeah. and how, like, Tom DeLonge is no longer in Blink-182. And do you remember this, like, project he came out with called Boxcar Racer? Maybe. It was like a, it was a different thing. He was trying to be serious. Right, and like people, I, I, I'm saying this is this is the downside to being interesting um, as a musician or like having an interesting story. Is that like these guys were known as like these dudes that joked about like spreading peanut butter on their balls and letting their dogs lick it right. off. Like that was their thing. That was right. like their that was their story. Right. I mean, essentially, and like so at some point, Tom DeLonge gets to like age like 26 or 27. He's like, um, I kind of want to be taken seriously. And the people that were fans of them just would not let them be taken seriously. They were just like, No, this is what you are to us now. And you have to stay this way. Yeah. Because this is why we came on board in the first place. Right. And now they're all in like music purgatory. Because yeah. like the new Blink One Eight Two stuff is all trying to be more serious and like yeah. more, you know, and it's not bad, you know? Uh but And then Tom DeLonge doesn't even want to be part of Blink 182. He's doing his own thing. That's like trying to be more serious and everything. But it's like they're not letting them do that. So sometimes I wonder if, like, um, you know, if uh, if Perfume Genius comes out with a record where he doesn't necessarily just want to, like, you know, because his first two records are very much about his experience as a gay man. Mm -hmm. You know, like, what if he comes out with a record is like, this is not about that. Like, are people going to be okay with that? Yeah. Or like somebody else, you know, because like people are such consumers. They're like, no, yeah. you need to be this for me. And I haven't done as much touring as you have, but um, with the touring that I have done, I'm just doing the same thing every night. And like, you know, it's been, like there's so many. I mean, there's still times when I play when with the show point is when we played these songs like a hun- hundreds of times, like there would still be a moment every now and then where we play a song we would played so many times and I'd be like, I love this right now. Yeah. You know? Like, I love it right now. Well,
1: sometimes if a crowd is really feeling one song... And like,
3: that's the novelty, right? You're like, oh my god, right. this
1: song is great.
3: Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm.
1: And then you play it like crap tomorrow, and you're like, <laughs> should we be playing this song anymore? Yeah. You know? uh-huh. Do you remember a, a particularly gnarly venue that you played that you feared for your life and limb? Or you, like, <laughs> wanted to get out of there as quick as possible?
3: Yeah. There's this place called... It's on the way to Phoenix, uh, near Blythe, and it's called like the Redwood, what is it called, the Red, Red Roof Inn, or something like that. <laughs> Live at the Red Roof Inn. Yeah, some shit like that. And um, we, first of all, we had this sweet kid playing piano and singing opening for us and so he opened this show and he's open to a bunch of people that do not give a shit about anything yeah he's doing it's just him and a piano and he's he in, yeah yeah Is that, he, do you remember that place yeah fell? i do remember that that was
1: also on my least
3: favorite it was show. a little like that yeah but um but yeah it's this like all the walls are concrete everything's concrete yeah. weirdest thing it looked like a soviet block yeah bar yeah uh, but anyways uh he played and like we're feeling pretty bad for him, and then we get on stage and like we have more energy or whatever. And I, this is when all the drunk people come out. and We start playing songs and playing some covers, and it was just a gig. It was like hundred bucks. It was very early on. I think it was like our second tour ever, and um, we start playing. And um, then in the middle of our set, this drunk ass white white lady just comes up to us and she's like, um, she wants to sing. Okay. And uh, she's like, I want to sing a song. I want to do it. I'm going to, I need you to, do you know any like black girl shit? Oh my God. Like Adele? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, wow. Yeah. And um, the, and she just got on stage and she grabbed a mic and she started trying to sing. And like, we all just were like, okay, let's take a break. And so yeah. we all get off the stage and there's a security guy there. Yeah. We're like, hey, man. I know you don't usually expect to do this kind of shit for the bands here, but um, can you get this crazy lady off stage? And she was sloppy, nasty drunk. And we just had to keep, we had to play that set because we were like, they're paying us. And like the last, the the gigs we had played before that, that was not necessarily the case.
1: That $100. Yeah, that $100
3: is going to get us to Phoenix, which that's true. I mean, we did need it to get to Phoenix, but yeah.
1: What's the song that you think you've written that maybe is the most offensive
3: or controversial that you can think of? Um, offensive to some people, yeah. I, I mean, I guess it would it's it would be. I'm afraid a song called "I'm Afraid" that is basically. I have a friend who. Grew up in a Catholic household and his mom for protection put this really scary picture of Jesus above his bed. Ooh. And so like demon Jesus? No, no, just like one of those icon iconography Jesus' where he's got like his heart in his hand and he's just like, eh, it's you like know. dripping blood. Yeah, exactly. And um and he said that when he was a kid he wasn't afraid of monsters, he was afraid of Jesus. <laughs> so I wrote a song about that. And I think the first verse is uh When I was young I prayed that he would let me be mother. Uh, mother hung his picture on my wall and prayed I would believe and she'd kiss my sweaty forehead and turn out all the lights no monster ever scared me like the face of Jesus Christ Uh, I listened to the promises and came to the Lord and I got pain and I got suffering and I don't know what for when I talk to Jesus I'm going to ask him to his face why'd you make this shit so hard Lord it feels like I've been played and I think some Christian folks are not really into approaching Jesus with such realistic (laughs) emotions. What were you afraid of most as a kid? Um, I had this fear that when I was a kid that there was going to be a hole just big enough to fit my bed uh, that was going to open up. Like a sinkhole? No, like 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 a a like almost like a trap door. Oh. And the trap door would just open up and I would fall endlessly wow. and never stop. Was it a dream? No, I would wake up and have that legitimate fear. I didn't wow. have a dream of that. But... Where would that come from? I, I have mean? no idea, man. Huh. I mean I did grow up Christian. There is some Christian trauma there. I would still kind of consider myself a Christian, but like there is like this whole like in the South especially, I mean they're very fond of hell. Hmm. They're way more fond of hell than they are of being a Christian or being like, you know, talking about Jesus or talking about heaven. They're like, "Well, there's well, hell's real, son, and you're going to go there if you don't do, you know." It's um yeah. So I think there was probably that, you know, that as a kid I was just like, "Oh my gosh. I could go straight to hell." And what do you think you're most afraid of now? Most afraid of now? Ooh, these are some good questions. I think I'm most afraid of my wife dying. Like, if I lost my wife, I think I'd... I have multiple... On multiple occasions, weekly, I think of that happening, and I... Oof. Well, I woke up in a
2: daze And thought I was alone and I looked to my right and saw an angel from the Lord. He was eating something when he smiled right at me. He picked me up like I weighed nothing, and I could not say the thing.
1: Do you think you have an abandonment issue from your mom?
3: Maybe, and I think also watching my dad go through mm. losing a wife, that I think that Exacerbated it a little bit, and you know, just knowing how much she, you know, is a part of my life, how much she means to me, I I don't know what I'd do without her.
1: What's the first song you wrote about your wife?
3: I don't. (laughs) It's bad. I do not exactly. (laughs) The first song I wrote about my wife was after Attitudes and the Dance. Yes, in ninth grade, and it was a song called.
2: Oh, golly.
3: It was a song called There's Something About Ashley. Is her name Ashley? Yeah. Wow, so it's just like not even, not even hiding it. Not even hiding it, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, that's how I've always kind of been. Just <laughs> put it out there. And um, What was the chorus? I didn't have a chorus. It was a ver- there's something about Ashley. <laughs> it was a verse form. <laughs> I don't think I ever actually said the phrase, there's something about Ashley. Um, I can't even remember the melody, to be honest with you. Did she ever hear it? Yeah. And I think there is a recording of it. Was she impressed? Mm, Yes. And I wrote another song. I was super cheese ball in high school. Man. Okay. What scares me is some people have a recording of this song. And I do not want it to come out. So I'm not even going to say what it is. But it's cheese. Yeah. Big bowl of cheese.
1: If you were to throw your own music festival, mm-hmm. first five people you would book, and, oh. and where would it be?
3: Okay. Also can be dead or alive. Okay, cool. Ooh. oh, Okay. Uh, I'm going to go two dead, because I feel like it'd be easy to go five dead here. Right. Okay, so Queen, Judy Sill. Okay. Easy. Uh, Queen, Judy Sill, Willie Nelson, Mitski. Mitski. And... Ooh, what's that? There's so many places I could go. This, because um, I'm also trying to think of like a fun time. Yeah. You know, uh, Saint Vincent. Ooh. All yeah. Right. Those five. I like that variety. In any, lot. and you can have it in any site. In the any world. site, any site. I would want to do it on, uh, like even if it's like physically impossible. Sure. Okay. Ma- Mount Waialeale in Kauai. Ooh. It's always raining. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, the most beautiful place on Earth, but it's always raining. I think I've been there. Yeah? Well, it's, like, that sign, the rainiest place on Earth. Yeah, ever. uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Or the, yeah, the wettest place on Earth or yeah. something like that. It's, like, this... You get up there, and it's this valley of just, like, tinkling waterfalls, yeah. like, all around you. It's
1: Well, the, and I remember we were trying to take a picture, and the fog had just cleared on that like coastline with the mountains and we're like oh my god get your phone out Uh and by the time we got our phones out fogs right back
3: in it was gone (laughs) and you're like yeah
1: Yeah. Uh Yeah. if you could have dinner with any person in history
3: who would it be? Um, hmm maybe Moses I feel like some crazy shit happened to Moses kind of got a bad rap yeah like I want to know some I want to know like because he wrote You know, like the Pentateuch, right? Mm. So. You know better than I. I want to know, like, what. What did the burning
1: bush really say?
3: Yeah, like, or what part of, like, what part of this is, like, you know, narrative? Mm. And what part of this, like, actually how? What part is historical? Yeah, I love, like,
1: Jesus to actually come back. Oh, yeah, yeah. And just to, like, go to a mega church and be like,
3: oh. This is not what I. Yeah, y'all are wrong. This is not it, man. This isn't it. Dinner with Moses. Yeah, dinner with Moses. Some pita bread. Some unleavened bread. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Dude, your beard is so in right now. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you think you get your creative mind from?
3: Um, I think my family in general is creative. I mean, I had a... my <clears throat> My great uncle, my grandpa's brother was a songwriter um who actually went into sun studios one time it was like i got this song i want to record it and he went with my grandpa wow my grandpa tells this story and uh and they were like yeah let's do it and they recorded it and uh and then they were like okay well this is a great song man here's the contract and um and my grandpa was like the older brother was like "Whoa, whoa 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 before we sign this contract we're just gonna go and like you know make sure there's not any other offers or anything. Yeah, tried to big time Sun Studios wow. in like the early '60s. Balls. Yeah, <coughs> that's one word for it. <laughs> anyway, so they um, hubris. They, yeah, exactly, hubris. They, and he would say the same thing, by the way. But they left, and then uh, they came back a few days later once they didn't find any other offers. Go figure. Yeah. And um, they're like, "Hey, we're back," and and the guy was like, "I don't remember you guys. Bye." <laughs> I just wonder how the trajectory of like yeah. my life. Yeah. Would have been different. Maybe you wouldn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I wouldn't exist. Or maybe like Could have been the next Johnny Cash. Yeah, who knows? But uh or his life for that matter, because he ended up getting, you know, addicted to heroin and and died of AIDS in like nineteen ninety one. Jesus. And uh like, you know, I just yeah, but he wrote songs and they were they were good songs. He has this one song that's like bought her a car, bought her a house, spent ten thousand dollars on a chair and a couch, bought her fine food and imported tea. And I wa- and, and I bought the shoes that just walked out on me, Ooh. and uh, so he wrote some good. you cover ones. that. Yeah, I have, I've, I, I have covered that. Yeah, but um, probably him and my uh, my granny, uh, my grandma's mom had a show in um, had a radio show in Fredericksburg where people would in Fredericksburg, Texas, a little some, small Germantown. they would call in and ask her to play music on her piano, and she'd just do it. So over the phone. Over the phone. Yeah. Uh
1: huh. <laughs> It's kind of amazing.
3: Somebody would ask from the phone, and then they would come and tell her, like, somebody wants you to play this, and then she would play it.
1: I really wish that uh, they weren't weed-whacking right outside the window right now. Oh, right, yeah. Some Uh heavy, like, landscaping. Some heavy
3: weed-whacking.
1: I mean, do you think that creativity, on one hand, but also addiction, on the other hand, is a genetic... Through line, or is it something that is about choices
3: just scientifically I believe 100% that there is an addiction gene for sure yeah. um, anybody who's been through the program you know knows like that's like one of the first things one of the first steps is to recognize that, like this is this is a this is a gene there's like a, there's a there's a problem here um, and uh, yeah I certainly believe that <laughs> the creative things more interesting to me Um Just as a question of whether it's, like, I think there's certainly some sort of innate nature to it, some sort of genetic nature to it, but I think there's also, like, some nurture there, too, where you just, your life experiences, like, what you think is cool as a kid, like, what you're into as a kid, I don't know. Um, But I certainly think that addiction is, is, is genetic, for sure.
1: What would you tell someone who's trying to remake themselves and trying to stay clean. Like, what is the way to do that that's actually practical?
3: I think that, you know, starting in the program is, like, the best thing you can do. It has the highest success rate of any... AA? Yeah, AA. It has the highest success rate of any program. just
1: being around peers that are trying to Mm -hmm. change themselves.
3: Yeah, but also, I mean, yeah, exactly. Being around that community of people who are, like, you know, because being encouraged... Is such a huge part of, like, trying to change yourself. Like, having encouragement and, like, being built up by people around you. And if you're around, like, a bunch of negative energy, people doing stuff that you don't want to be doing, I mean, it's nigh impossible to get out of it.
1: We're going to do an exercise right now. Let's do it. With our friend William Shakespeare. All right. So I want you to think the first thing... That comes to your mind from a moment in your life. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a place. Maybe it's a person, situation. When I f- say the following line, when everything seems double.
3: Oh, this is this is perfect. I have this like constant metaphor in my life of like, you know the 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 myth of the doppelganger. Yeah. Like we use the doppelganger as like this like oh that's your doppelganger, right. but like it's actually like this German for the listeners at home who don't know. It's this piece of German folklore. Mm. And it's a bad omen. Mm. And it's when you're walking down the street and you see yourself out of the corner of your eye. And you look and then it's gone. Mm. And it's considered a bad omen. Mm. And there's this book by Charles Williams where he talks about uh, like the idea of like approaching your doppelganger, mm. like and just being like, okay with it, you know? It's mm. so, like there's this moment where you just like you meet yourself, mm-hmm. you say, oh. This is who I am, and I'm going to be okay with it. Hmm. So, like, at one point in my life, um, when I was in a cycle of addiction and, like, going through this kind of, like, process of figuring myself out, there was this constant fear of like anytime somebody asks me like okay this is something you need to dive into like this thing that happened to you when you were a kid like you need to dive into this you need to understand it better if you want to get past this and like it's this terrifying thing because it's almost like you see yourself out of the corner of your eye and you thank god when you look over and you see that it's not there anymore Mm. because to look it in the face would be terrifying Mm. you know so when you say, when, when I hear that line, that's what I go to. It's this myth of the doppelganger and, like, just approaching yourself and seeing yourself for who you are and seeing mm. that this is something that you're, that's going to force you to, like, deal with your issues. Wow. All right, here's the next one.
1: As by your safety wisdom,
3: all things else, you mainly were stirred up. Hmm. I thought of my mom there was this youth group thing called UM Army where we went out and fixed a bunch of houses for impoverished folks in Texas. Mm. And my mom was not a social person. She was very much an introvert and kind of had social anxiety. And um, I just, the the word safety made me think of this. Uh, And she, but she was like, one year she was like, I'm really committed this time. I'm going to go I'm gonna go and be a part of this thing because the parents would come too. That was the whole thing. Like we would all get together and like go fix, you know, fix like siding or like you know make wheelchair ramps and stuff like that. And uh, she was like, "I'm gonna do it this year" because she had never had and she was sober at the time. And um, she came and just kind of got eaten alive Mm. by the um, soccer moms there. Mm. Um, She wasn't like the other moms no and she wanted to help and she was a physician assistant and so she was like i'll be on the safety team Mm -hmm. which there was like every morning they would like tell you Mm -hmm. you know uh, where like watch out for like exposed nails and stuff like that and if anybody had any injury they'd come to them and um and yeah she just got eaten alive by the other um mom's (laughs) Because she just wasn't like them and she wasn't sociable and she had this anxiety and like people thought she was weird for it and she had insomnia so she could never sleep in a place that like wasn't her place Mm. and uh and then she you know she left three days early and I don't know why but that just always killed me yeah well it's Mm. like you want your mom to be like there for you yeah but I also felt bad for her oh yeah because I know she wanted to do so bad Mm. and yeah, it's just when when she died, I started thinking about stuff like this. And she, did she hear any of the songs on this record before she passed? I actually got to play her uh, the last song on the record, Grandfather, mm. which references her dying. Oof. Weird thing for me. But, uh, yeah. How did she react? We both... Cried like babies. Wow! My whole family was in the room. I d- I wrote that song in like twenty minutes. And I came out and played it. I was mm-hmm. like, I don't know where this came from, but mm. and um, yeah, we just I I don't even think I finished the last line of the song before I was. How's the chorus going? That. Um. So it's another. I'm a big fan of chorusless songs. It's another yeah. verse form song. So it's just like verse, 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 verse. But um, the last line is. Uh, um, she's singing this song as she braids her black hair. Free from death and destruction, decay and despair. Peaceful and lovely, I'm breathing new air. Mm. But, yeah, that's... um, You think she's in a happier place? I definitely, like, am a big believer in heaven. Absolutely. So, yes, I do. But it's okay if other folks don't believe in an afterlife. I'm not interested in pushing that on anybody. I appreciate that the Weed Whacker... Stopped for that? Stopped for that moment. About <laughs> yeah, him. it was really tasteful. Yeah, he's
1: really going at it. <laughs> yeah, he sure is. All right, last one. As I am an honest man, I thought you had received some bodily wound. Mm. I, uh,
3: I'm going back to my mom again. We were in a car accident when I was 18, a pretty nasty one. We were, uh, we were going through this, um, there was an exit ramp. My mom was not the best driver. I was, we were going to pick up a new car in another part of town that she had gotten. Um, and, uh, and there's this exit ramp and we're going pretty fast and she realizes this is the exit ramp she needs to go into. So she whips into it Mm. and starts fishtailing back Mm. and forth and and so much so that like she was perpendicular with the road at one point, Mm. at which point an 18 wheeler comes through and T bones us on the driver's side. If it would have been like two feet closer to the driver's side door, she would have been dead. But it hit behind. Hmm. So, um, but anyways, uh, I didn't have my seatbelt on, and I'm, like, you know, just, like, getting Uh. thrown around the car. She had her seatbelt on, um, but she, uh, when I came to, you know, it's all fuzzy, and I'm looking up, and I turn to the left, and I see her in the driver's seat, and she's, like, just hanging, her head's just hanging there limp. And there's blood coming from her head. Yeah. And I thought she was dead. And, uh... And I had blood coming down my face, too. And, like, I got out of the car, and I was like, does anybody have any towels? You know, I'm just freaking out. This kid, like, bleeding on his face and, like, getting, you know, somebody give me some towels and, like, this, um, these, uh, um, uh, lawn workers came up to me and they handed me some towels and like so I put pressure on her I put pressure on mine. She finally woke up and she said, That fucker came out of nowhere. <laughs> and uh my mom did not cuss very much. Yeah. But um anyways, uh which it didn't come out of nowhere yeah. at all. But uh so we went to the hospital and uh we're at Ben Taub, which is like this big 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 hospital in the ER and we both got these identical gashes on our foreheads. Wow. And they're open because they haven't had a chance to stitch us up yet. So we're just sitting around with these huge gashes on our forehead that are clotting, so they're not bleeding anymore. So we took this picture of us, just like a selfie, before there were even selfies. Yeah. We had like a, a disposable camera, yeah. and we took a picture of ourselves with identical forehead gashes. It's pretty gruesome, but that's what I thought of. when We you could, you could album cover it. someday. You know? I am... Uh, I have... That is not the first time I've I've heard that or thought that. <laughs>
1: Actually, wanted to ask you about the album cover for yeah your upcoming record. It's like a it's like a a cabin mm-hmm. bursting into flame, right? Being lifted off the ground, infested by some sort of many tentacled beast.
3: Yeah, right. Uh-huh.
1: Kind of reminded me of uh, Stranger Things a bit.
3: Yeah, it has a Stranger Things feel but too. But
1: also this sort of this sort of cozy home in the woods being just obliterated Mm. from all sides. Yeah, love that. Where's that image come
3: from? I told the guy that did the art is a guy named Marcus Greiner. And uh, when we were talking, I just told him, like, I think I would love it if you could just... uh, I have this song, Smoke in the Stars. It's the opener on the record. I said, I'd love it if you could turn that song... Into a piece of art, and that's what he came up with, mm. and I thought it was brilliant, and I was in love with it the first the first moment I saw it. But um, in the song, I start by I, I I had this dream that I was standing in this cabin in the middle of like Bakersfield. I don't know how I knew I was in Bakersfield not not in the middle of Bakersfield, but between Bakersfield and the Grapevine, like where there's like nothing. You know, you get out of the Grapevine and there's that big open area where you just see the five run for miles. Everything's in flames and yeah. infested with sea serpents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I'm in this cabin like in the middle of like a plane uh, or uh, middle of a like a, you know, plain, like a, like a desert plane. And, um, and I'm standing in opaque blue water up to like my knees and it's dark, but I can see the blue water like perfectly, mm. really weird lighting. And uh, there's snakes swimming around me. And um, and then I see the door. It's totally pitch dark except the water's lit. And then I see all of a sudden this door, like a light starts shining through the cracks of the door. Mm-hmm. And then I woke up. And naturally, I decided to turn it into a love song, wherein as one does, someone comes and opens the door for me. And then the place gets set aflame, and the snakes turn into fire, and they just blow up. That's what, you know, that's what love is. That's what love is, man. Yeah. Just snakes burning up in a cabin in the middle of Bakersfield.
0: <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> <clears throat> On that note, before we play a song, mm-hmm. uh, and since you seem to love poetry, we're uh-huh. going to do a brief writing exercise. Let's do it. There's a notebook with a pen down there. Oh, all right. And since we've been going strong with Bill Shakespeare here, yeah. we're going to write our own... Poem based on this line. He hath been used ever to conquer and to have his worth of contradiction. Mm. All right, you want to go first or you want me to go first?
3: Uh, you go first. Okay. Actually, no, I'll go first. Okay. In case yours just, you just knocked it out of the park. I have no idea. I'm not going right. to be the headliner. Go ahead. All right. What saith he in times of death when love has times, good deeds, and cuffs? What saith he before escape when trouble lies and sorrows wake? In due course he'll conquer love by leaving it to die. In contradiction, by and by, he'll do it with a lie.
1: Hmm. As a baby screams outside yeah. of the like, What is going on today? I don't know. We got, we got landscaping, we got tiny children being abandoned in the yeah. driveway. We, we don't have any small children We should in check complex. on that.
3: We should make sure they're yeah. not actually being abandoned.
1: Okay, we will in a second. Yeah, we got this poetry poem. to do. Yeah,
3: okay.
1: How he wanted her, even as he hated everything she said red lips spitting flames while teeth bared to crucify him for some unknown future crime. His blood, whose blue rivers trapped by flesh for now until the knife entered, boiled as she asked him for the fourth or fifth time Did you mail the rent check out this week or not? <laughs>
3: That's that's very good. Way better than mine, man. I was just trying to sound English.
1: <laughs> Which song would you like to play?
3: Um, you know, <laughs> given the theme of our talk has been circled a lot around grief and stuff, I think I'll, I'll play a uh, I'll play "Grandfather." Great. Yeah, the last track off the record. The last track. All right.
2: Grandfather, my mind is a blur. It's like I've been here a while, or I've just now arrived. And the water is nice and the wind is so fine. Have I been here a while or did I just arrive? Grandfather, you have not said a word that is so unlike you. But it's clear from your smile, you know something so good. Something I don't know, but something I should. But, well, grandfather, why haven't you said a word? Your hair has grown back And you've got a beard Your wrinkles have gone and your eyes are like iron I'm watching you smile as I figure this out This beautiful place we always talked about Grandfather I think my mother's here too Is her suffering through I am shaking just thinking of seeing her new Freed from that dark room that's held her since youth Oh, grandfather, tell me my mother's here too Or shoot people up when they're just trying to dance Be a grandson, grab your heart and prepare Your mother's just over there And she is singing this song as she braids her black hair Free from death and destruction, decay and despair She's peaceful and lovely and breathing new air She's peaceful and lovely and breathing new air
1: There he goes, Mr. Jason Hawk Harris. You can go to jasonhawkharris.com for his music and his tour dates. He will be playing at Folk Alliance in New Orleans January 23rd and then playing throughout the South in Jackson, Mississippi, Memphis, Tennessee, Ruston, Louisiana, Austin, Texas, and more. He's playing at South by Southwest in March, so go check him out. And if you head over to thebluegrasssituation.com, you can see Jason Hawk Harris performing Give In on an old L.A. soundstage, and I really, really urge you to give his new record, Love in the Dark, a chance. It is truly a gem. And even if you don't think you like where modern country music is going these days, this is where modern country music should be going. And Bloodshot Records put that out. And speaking of new records coming out, I'm going to say it one more time. My band Dust Bowl Revival's new record, Is It You, Is It Me, will be coming out January 31st. I'm going to keep shouting it until it happens. Thank you to 30 Tigers for releasing it for us. You know what? If there's one thing this new record is about. It's about facing your fears. The opening track, Dreaming, is about that fear that I'd never really talk about, which is stage fright. Every night you go out there and you kill yourself a little bit to tell your story. But you know what? It's worth it. It's always worth it. Give that song and all the new ones a listen on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Music, all that good stuff. And you know what? You can find this podcast on Spotify, on Stitcher, on Apple. We're all over the place. Please tell your friends about us. We're going to have some really fun episodes coming up, and then we'll take a little break and be back in April. The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupitan, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love The Show on the Road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on thebluegrasssituation.com. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lubiton. See you on the
0: trail. Welcome
1: to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. uh, And right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all.
0: (laughs) And my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom.